Hello, everybody, and welcome into a brand new episode of Let's Dive Deep. My name is Bradley. My name is Connor. And today we are beginning the first episode, the very start of our deep dive into the magical, mystical, and deeply influential wizarding world of Harry Potter. During today's, and indeed most excitingly, our first deep dive into this series, we will cover Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, Chapter 1, The Boy Who Lived, and Chapter 2, The Vanishing Glass. Yes, you may also know it as Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Trust us, we'll get into it. I must warn you, dear listener, that while each installment of this series will focus on a particular chapter or set of chapters, we are both revisiting these books, and a certain degree of foresight cannot be completely avoided. First-time readers are strongly encouraged to read chapters ahead of time, lest future details be spoiled by our discussion. And also, remember that first-years are prohibited from having their own broomsticks. Much like being left on a doorstep on a presumably very cold winter's evening as an infant, they left Harry Potter on that doorstep for hours. It's insane. Let's Dive Deep contains adult content. Are these books for children? Yes. Is that going to stop us from getting adulty with it? Absolutely not. So please, you know, these podcasts aren't going to be the worst for children, but there's some swearing and stuff. So unless your child is old enough to have received their OWL results, we recommend not playing this podcast in front of them. So I guess that's it, Bradley. Yeah, is that? I, th- I, I think, think we're, so. I think we're doing this. Yeah, I think we're 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 diving deep. I think we are. That's it. Our mischief is managed, and we solemnly swear that we are up to no good. So, grab yourself a pumpkin juice, a butter beer, maybe even a fire whiskey, and let's dive deep into Harry Potter. Before we get into our first ever chapter recap for Let's Dive Deep Harry Potter, we just want you to know that we are fully aware that Harry Potter brings about a lot of discussion and we would like to have those discussions with you and take kind of all of the amazingness of the wizarding world outside of the podcast to keep everything kind of rolling, to immerse ourselves further in Harry Potter. You can do that in a few different ways. First off, we have an email address, letsdiveDeeppod at gmail.com, where you can send us any feedback, any questions, any just whatever you want. If Whatever you want to chat about feel free to send us an email we have a twitter at let's dive deep where you can get all kinds of podcast updates and you know continue the conversation there we have a facebook group which you can find in the show notes once you're in the facebook group we talk about all of our favorite pop pop culture phenomenons harry potter being one of them we also chat about all the other things we do deep dives on so if you want to join a facebook group full of like like like-minded pop culture nerds feel free to head over there the question is i solemnly swear that i am up to no you just got to type in good and we will get you in there and finally if you would like to do a value for value exchange and and move a few galleons in our direction for some bonus content feel free to head over to patreon.com slash let's dive deep that link is in the show notes as well once you're over there there's a few different tiered options for you guys but we have early access to all of our episodes not just harry potter but all of the deep dives that we do uh bridgerton the witcher what else hamilton all of those ones as well if you're interested in that we have access to our show notes we have some producer credits there's a few other things over there as well so if you want to check that out that'll be in the show notes and i think we are ready for the first chapter recap for the first time in let's dive deep harry potter i get to give you a chapter recap chapter one the boy who lived 
Here's the recap for those of you who aren't reading in real time with us. Wizard Kind has seemingly defeated Voldemort and their celebrations begin to attract the attention of muggles, specifically the Dursleys. Harry Potter is the lone survivor of the attack and Dumbledore, Mackie G, and Hagrid to varying degrees ensure that he is placed safely or not so safely at the doorstep of his last <laughs> remaining family members. There's also a lot of magic shit happening. One of the things we are doing on this podcast is giving you some alternate chapter titles. We thought it'd be fun, when, when appropriate, you know, not for every chapter, uh, when appropriate, to give you some alternate chapter titles. So feel free to hit us up on our show, socials, Twitter, email, those types of things, Facebook group, and let us know who you think has the best alternate chapter title. For chapter one, I'm going with Doorstep Neglect. So far, it's been a minute. I've mentioned it three times. I am hyper-focused on the fact that they left an infant on a doorstep for hours. It's not until Petunia puts out the milk bottles that he's noticed. This is in. This is from Dumbledore and McGonagall. Hagrid, you know, okay. But from Dumbledore and McGonagall, this is cruel. I got to admit, both as a reader and a person, I appreciate your worry about our protagonist here because you're concerned for him like i assume that this person is important we're talking about him a lot and all of a sudden boom here he is on someone's fucking stoop but also <laughs> i just i love that my creative partner in this venture is objectively against child abuse that's important for me as right. a content creator to know. I, I like that about you. It is harder to podcast with people who are pro-child abuse. That yeah, it's is, very hard. It's it's tricky. very difficult. Yeah, right. I mean... What is, what is your alternate chapter title? Vernon Dursley's Very Good, No Bad Day. You mean No Good, Very Bad Day? Well, we have our first edit of the series, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, which is unfortunate because, we, as we all know, you cannot edit audio. No, you can't yes. edit audio. You can't. You can't do it. Vernon Dursley's no good, very bad day. It is a no good, very bad day. He gets to yell for at him. some people, though. That's nice. Well, that makes it very good for him because he has expressed, as we'll get to, how much he enjoys it. But, like, part of me is, like, taking the piss out of the chapter for, like, focusing on him. But at the same time... I do actually like that we use Vernon Dursley as a framing convention. Absolutely. And we start the book, like when you when you look at the front cover, it's Harry Potter and the Philosopher's or Sorcerer's Stone. So you believe that the focus is Harry Potter. And yet we begin with the Dursleys. And so there's a cognitive dissonance between the cha the the chapter title and the title of the book. And I find that fascinating. And I don't know. It might be it might be more interesting if we doubled down on that cognitive dissonance and we just fully frame chapter one in the Dursley's POV. Let's not call it the boy who lived. Let's call it Vernon Dursley is sad. You know? <laughs> right? All right. <laughs> There you go. You got your two <laughs> chapter titles. I I I chose to meme a little bit more than Connor did. You have Doorstep Neglect and Vernon Dursley's No Good, Very Bad Day. Let us know who wins the first round of alternate chapter titles here at Let's Dive Deep Harry Potter. There's a lot to get to. Uh, there's so much to start with. I think I want to start at chapter one, just so the brief for the, the listeners who maybe aren't as intimately familiar with Harry Potter, just a brief overview of like how this book kind of came to be. Uh, author J.K. Rowling 
this is her first novel and that's very important to kind of understand as we go through here because we're going to talk a lot about the writing and, and and especially as we go through the books how her writing improves over time there are a lot of great little bits of writing in these two chapters there are a lot of super clunky bits of writing in these two chapters where you can tell like oh this is someone's first book it's also worth knowing i think this book was rejected 17 I, that might be a complete exaggeration i want to say the number was 17 um, but some ridiculous amount of times no one wanted to sell this book early on right it was written and it was rejected a whole bunch of times before i can see connor googling it before it came to be and it's insane to think about it that way when now that harry potter is a massive worldwide phenomenon probably with up with Star Wars as the most valuable IP out there, maybe the Avengers, maybe Marvel, the cinematic universe there is kind of catching up. Um, but Harry Potter is this massive worldwide brand now. We're sitting here doing this podcast about it. And so it's kind of worth knowing that this book is the first one. This book was written um, by a first time author who did not know that this was going to blow up and be this big worldwide phenomenon. I just like to frame things in that way when I look at the writing here because some of it is very, very interesting. And I want to start with the chapter title, The Boy Who Lived. This is a master stroke. When you, when you read the title of the book, Harry Potter and the whatever stone, whichever version you're getting, and you understand that this book is written for 10-year-olds, 11-year-olds, that kind of age range, right? How are you going to suck people in to your book? What are you going to do to get people invested? And the first thing that JK does here is, is, a, is an amazing chapter title. Not every chapter title is amazing, but this one, The Boy Who Lived, it gives you this sense of mystery. Like, who is this boy? How did he live? Who wanted to kill a child? Right? Who wanted to kill this boy? And giving us a reason to read the chapter before you even get to the chapter is incredible masterstroke of, of, of writing here. Um, and chapter titles make a big difference. And this chapter title absolutely nails it. It's worth taking into consideration, albeit merely briefly that as we revisit these books, all of the chapter titles are available to us near the front jacket of the book. Correct. Right. And uh, I, I think it's it's foolish not to admit that that's going to influence how how we think about them. Um, and I do. I, I, I think it's uh, even setting that aside. It's an evocative and very interesting chapter title. I think that if we're if we're being very smart if we are reading these books empathetically, uh, you can intuit that Harry is the boy who lived, especially because he's on the front cover uh, and it's called Harry Potter and the Stone, <laughs> right? Like that's, and that's, that's not necessarily a fault on J.K. Rowling's part because this is very common in both uh YA fiction and mystery fiction and Harry Potter kind of straddles those two traditions. Uh Artemis Fowl, his name is on the front cover of every Artemis Fowl book. So, you know, if I remember name correctly. With Percy Jackson? I want to say uh, the Percy Yeah, I I think you're right about that too. So like, but at the same time, what is our focus here? Like, I could forgive you if you think that 
Dudley is the boy who lived. Like it's it's there's there's something mysterious and interesting right in the first chapter. Um, and yes, I was googling. Uh, and you weren't being that ridiculous. It was twelve publishers. Twelve publishers, which is kind of ridiculous, right? That is a that is an even dozen people who are kicking themselves in the asses for turning down. That is twelve people Harry... fired. Yeah, that is not twelve. Those are those twelve people who lost their jobs. If I was the head of a publishing company and I found out that anyone, and hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? But I see Harry Potter blowing up. It is like I mentioned, probably one of the top three most valuable IPs in the world. Without googling, I, I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure though, like that Star Wars and yeah. Marvel Avengers is probably top three. Someone is losing their job. Maybe it's me. Maybe it's me for not fostering a work culture that's that gives people the the wherewithal to go and snatch up a Harry Potter. I don't know who's getting fired. Maybe it's me. Maybe it's the person who denied Harry. Someone needs to lose their job over not picking up <laughs> Harry Potter. Yeah, I mean, twelve is a lot. It's not seventeen, but that's a lot. The no, it is. It's crazy. It's an even dozen. Like the 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 sheer number of people that passed on this, it's it's mind boggling. Like you, oh god, you don't. There, there's a Hallmark movie made about at least one of these people that passed on signing Harry Potter. Chapter one: The man who lost their job. All right. In this chapter, I think it's worth starting with the Dursleys. I think the Dursleys occupy most of this chapter. We start with them. We get this through the Dursleys. We actually learn quite a bit about the magical world. And and JK, with another writing masterstroke here, kind of takes us on Vernon Dursley's No Good, Very Bad Day, which is awesome. And through that, we learn quite a bit. But we get this really slow introduction to magic. Part of what makes this chapter so interesting to me and so intriguing, and and maybe it's because I already love Harry Potter and I'm just rereading it lovingly with all of the beautiful nostalgia that comes Mm -hmm. with it, is there's no wands in this chapter. People aren't, like, it doesn't start with people, like, taking out wands and fucking saying spells and shit. Like, it it doesn't immediately overwhelm you with the magic. It lets you just embrace it. Like, through Verdon Dursley, we're noticing, like, there's an owl, and that's strange. But it's not magic yet. You can be forgiven. And all the people are in robes. And that's slightly stranger. That's slightly more strange. But it's not... You can still be forgiven for not fully believing it's magic. Right? But then by the end of this chapter, like, McGonagall's a fucking cat and then she's a woman. Like, that is unambiguously magic. Right? And Dumbledore's taking the put-outer and that is unambiguously magic. But it doesn't overwhelm you. It gives you a chance to really kind of get into this chapter. We're going to talk about the Dursleys and how we're, we're meant to dislike them, but it gives you that chance. We're going to follow Vernon Dursley. We're going to end up disliking the Dursleys, but through Vernon Dursley, we're going to slowly get exposed to some of the magic in this universe without just being like hit over the head with it, which I think is very smart, A, from a writing standpoint, but also because these books are for 10 and 11-year-olds. Right? You can't overwhelm... Like As a 10-year-old reading this book, I can't be overwhelmed too quickly, and I, I love the slow introduction of magic in this chapter. Yeah, this chapter is the lift hill as you're going as you're starting the roller coaster. Like this is the 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 mechanical slow sounds of the chain taking you up to the drop, you know. Uh Vernon's dislike for people in robes. You could understand his, his idea of robes. You could easily conflate that with dressing grounds, right? This could just be Vernon's understanding of an individual's pants radius. And yeah. there, 
they're out of the home in pajamas. How dare they, right? It's odd, but not obliquely magical yet. And we do get that progression. Uh, something that I, uh, something that I want to talk about when we talk about the snake as well. This is the book teaching us how to read it. This is the book letting us know there are magic things around us. There are magical things just out the corner of our eye. And I think you have a very keen observation about Vernon Dursley. He refuses to actually see them. And that's fascinating to me. And we don't get it in this chapter, but we know as readers now that there's only a handful of muggles that are allowed to know about magic, right? Without getting their memory wiped, without anything like that. Um, the Dursleys are a couple of them. Any parents of, um, of any muggle parents of witches and wizards, they get to know about Hogwarts and everything without getting their mind melded <laughs> by the ministry, right? But this, it's, there's only a hand. So this is a man who knows via petunia that magic exists and that he he's married into a family that's at least partly magical and that harry or harold or harvey or whatever <laughs> exists <laughs> right and so this is a man who knows that magic exists who's refusing to believe it this isn't someone mm -hmm. noticing something weird and just not having the frame of reference you can imagine if i walked down the street and i saw some if someone just appeared in front of me I wouldn't immediately go, well, guess magic exists. I would have so many deep internal existential questions that I would have to work through before I could believe that what I just saw was magic. But that's not the same for Vernon. He understands fully that something magical is going on and refuses to believe it, which I just find just the, a perfect little, when you're reading it back, addition to his character. Because you, when you read it the first time, you don't know that he fully understands it the way he does. You understand that like there's a kid like that, and Petunia's sister is strange. But you don't you don't understand how much he knows. But you get the sense later that he, he fully knows what's happening, and still won't believe it. Weird guy, Vernon loves drills though. Loves drills. Grunnings, perfect name. Perfect so name. On a monopoetic, it's brilliant. And what you're talking about there. I think is one of the things that I really love about the writing here and, and, and why I think possibly we start in the more mugglish point of view. We have to set up what is mundane. We have to set up what is pedestrian before we can appreciate the transition into the magical world that Harry is destined to step into, right? Because contrast leads us to understand how special these moments are and harry potter and the stone if it's a book about anything is a book about a person going through thresholds it's a it's a book about a person going through transitions and the cat turning into a person a wizard in purple robes with a broken nose and spectacles and a magic d flashlighter like, that matters, and a flying motorcycle, all of that matters so much more if we begin in a perfectly English suburban environment. Thank you very much. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, we, have to, we, have to start, uh, we have to start in keeping up appearances for Doctor Who to be important. 
Yeah, I think you're definitely correct that in order for us to appreciate the magic, we need to understand how unmagical the Dursleys are. And and I think it's worth, you know, we can't, we don't have time to go into every detail about Dursley's no good, very bad day, but it's worth kind of going over the greatest hits. This is a man we start with who, who doesn't want to, un, like, doesn't want to acknowledge the magic is happening, who wants to be perfectly normal, like a normal middle-class person, a normal middle-class family. And there's something endearing about that. He just wants to get by. That's all we're trying to do. We're all just trying to get by. He wants to go to work. He wants to sell his drills. He wants to come home. He, want to he wants to watch the news. He doesn't want anything out of the ordinary from his routine to be interrupting him, which, which is relatable in a way. But this is also a man who, in an office with a window, will choose to sit like with his back facing the window, which is a wild choice. Right? This is a man who kind of gets high off yelling at people. One of the greatest bits of writing in this chapter, it's so funny, is you learn that he's had a great morning, he's yelled at a bunch of people, he's made a bunch of important phone calls, he keeps yelling some more, and then the little trick of the... It's like, and it's only lunchtime. Like, he, he's not a very good person, but well, through the frame of magic, he is a very unmagical person, and that does allow us to have this contrast when later we're seeing the magic to be like, oh, this isn't a story. We're not about to read a story for Vernon Dursley. Like if you're reading this and you are a Vernon Dursley, you're probably not going to like this story very much. But if you aren't, if you will look out the window, right? If you will open, if you will embrace the people in the robes and the owls and the shooting stars, then this story is going to be for you. And all of this magic is just happening one of the things that really endeared me as a kid, it's just, you you mentioned out of the corner of your eye. I like to use like the veil. I mean, only since I read the veil and about the veil in book five, have I got this reference, but now I like to look at it. It's like the magic is just behind the veil. It's right there. Mm -hmm. It's right there at all times, right? You just, it's just through the brick wall at platform nine and three quarters. You just got, if you, if you diagonally, if you just tap the bricks the right way, it's just right there. It exists right around you. Right. And, and, and the Dursleys are a great frame for that, where the magic is just happening right in front of him. If only he'd be willing to acknowledge it, which is what we're being asked to do as the readers. Yeah. You're, you're both specifically and also generally referencing my notes and my thoughts, because this, we, we have an, ex, we have an explicit example here of Dursley turning his back on the world outside of him. But also, you know, we're we're being instructed here that he is the, he is a bad guy in this story because he refuses to believe in what is around him. Right? We're we're going to learn that they do not tolerate imagination. Don't ask questions. Yeah, right? he doesn't approve of imagination. Like, what yeah. a line! What? How? What does that even mean? What a line! You know, he can't. He can't have the imagination to to call a prospective buyer and try to sell them drills. Is that not imagination? Like, Dwight Schrute would not approve. Um, so, <laughs> but here, and and this is why it is good storytelling. Later, we are told it. Here, we are shown it. Here we are shown who this person is, and it it really is is quite effortless and and quite brilliant, you know. Um, I do I, want to defend the Dursleys a little bit here. I think how I think how hold on hold on and why I, okay all right I, th I think I think the villains in Harry Potter are very well 
humanized, except for Voldemort, who's just pure evil. And I think there are some endearing moments here. Like, they are specifically, the, the Dursleys are specifically abusive and neglectful towards Harry. But there are some moments where th this is just a man trying, like, when he gets up from the table and he, like, makes sure he gives his wife a kiss before he goes to work. Those little moments that are just relatable. Like, what a good husband. Like, he's just looking out for his family. And, like, it doesn't, it doesn't at all absolve him of any responsibility for his negative actions. But there are these little moments thrown in here to make the Dursleys human instead of just capital V villains or capital A antagonists. There are these little moments put in here, right? Like, even something small, like, he, go, he goes for lunch... And he's like going to the deli to get a sandwich, right? Like this is something I do when I go for lunch. There are these little things put in there that, that I guess maybe defend the Dursleys wasn't the right word, but that do humanize the Dursleys. So they're not just, it's a, it's a short chapter and there's a lot of magic shit to talk about, but the Dursleys aren't just neglectful and abusive. They are, and that's bad and we shouldn't like them. That's the point. But there is there is a little bit of shading in the in the kind of background to make it so they're not just boring, stupid villains. That they are actually like Petunia likes neighbors gossip. That's relatable. I remember as a kid, my mom would talk to all her friends about gossip all the time. Right? And she's not neglectful or abusive, but that's just something people do. People like gossip. And so I, I enjoy these little things that are put in there with the Dursleys that just stop them from being kind of stupid lame capital b villains and just people that are terrible but actual people i'm with you there i hearing your explanation i definitely am with you i would argue that it's possible maybe it's not about humanizing them per se or making them more sympathetic characters but about more grounding them in the human area of we're supposed to believe that they're part of the boarding school adventure villain world. Like they're just, they're just nasty. Like you might, like you might get these type of types of characters from lemony snickets. <laughs> yes. Right. Um, they're not, they're not Sauron. They're just your evil uncle. Um, but also, there's a certain, I would argue there is a certain mundanity, a certain pedestrian nature to the way in which Vernon pecks Petunia on the cheek. There is a certain implication in the text, the way I read it, that it is just his daily routine rather than being romance. It is just part of their suburban experience. It is just another instance of the world that we are about to move beyond. Either way, it works for me. Whether yeah. it's romance or not, like it, it's still a grounding moment. There's lots of people like that, like in an unhappy marriage, just going through the routine to just because they got to, right? Like I, I think either way, it works for me as a humanizing, mm -hmm. maybe not humanizing, but like grounding. Ooh, grounding here's, is the right. Here's the question. When Vernon doesn't want to bring up to Petunia that he heard Harry's name on the street, is he doing it out of trying to protect his wife and her emotional well-being or because he doesn't want to fucking deal with it? Oh, I go 10%, 90%. Okay. I think, I yeah, think there's yeah. a genuine... The narrator gives us... The narrator... I want to talk about the narrator. is fairly omniscient in this chapter. Mm -hmm. And it does give us the sense that, you know... 
he's well aware that bringing this up will be painful question mark something to petunia that she won't Mm -hmm. like talking about it and i think most of that's probably that he doesn't want to deal with petunia not liking it but i think there's i i i just i i think there's a little bit in there with vernon dursley and with the dursleys that that is genuinely not terrible because most of it is very terrible i think there is that 10 percent in there that five percent where he's like he doesn't want to bring this up to petunia because petunia is not going to like that and he somewhere in deep down does care that petunia is not going to like that even if two things can be true at the same time he also doesn't want to deal with the wizards and the potters and all of this shit yeah i have to wonder if your reading of these moments and your discussion of them is more loyal to chapters one and two only, whereas mine isn't. I think that's possible. Like I'm, I am having a very difficult time separating my opinions of personal descriptions, physical descriptions in JK's legendarium generally. Like I, I have to admit I'm having a hard time separating that from the Dursleys in chapters one and two. And I think that you're actually giving a more loyal chapters one and two only analysis of the characters as they're presented here. Sure. I have many problems with JK's descriptions of people, which I actually were going to get into, I think, in chapter two. No, no, no. I, I know you do as well. But like you're you're coming at this from a like what I'm hearing from you, at least, is an honest analysis based on I've read chapters one and two only. And you're finding the elements of humanity in the Dursleys. Whereas I'm looking at them as unexcusable grotesques that are poorly written. And I get that maybe that's the purpose of them. They're supposed to be hateable because that fits into what we think the structure of the book is now. And we're supposed to have this odd caricature of mundanity at this point. But like, I, I, I got to applaud your broader perspective on it here. It's, it's much broader than I'm willing to take at this point, And I commend it. All right. I think that's probably enough with the Dursleys. We do have to move probably, on to the actual yeah. magic shit that happens. Yeah. At some point it, too. being a book about magic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Right. Let's get into the magic shit that's happening. There's loads of magic stuff happening, and we're slowly easing into it. We have owls flying around. We got shooting stars, all of this stuff. Um, the main magic bit starts. This this one random wizard person in robes hugs Vernon Dursley and gets to give the, the Voldemort is dead reveal. You should be happy about this. Muggles should be happy about this. We're slowly being spo- exposed to more vernacular. Like, the word muggle comes up. What does that mean? We'll learn later, but it's it's the slow exposure to all of these different magical things. But this one random wizard dude gets to give us the reveal that someone has died, something big has happened, the wizards are celebrating. And so later, when you get this tabby cat that keeps popping up, she's got marks around her eye her eyes that Vernon notices, so it's the same cat, and it's been there all day. You're like, is this person magical? And then when Dumbledore shows up, I wanna point this out, in high-heeled boots, this did not happen. In the movies, Dumbledore shows up in high-heeled boots. I would like that 
picture painted for me somewhere of a Dumbledore in high-heeled boots on a street in the suburbs of Britain somewhere. Um, we get a lot of reveals from Dumbledore. Dumbledore is already serving as this person with immense knowledge, with immense power. McGonagall talks to him about, you know, he's the only person that Voldemort ever feared or something like that. And the only reason Dumbledore kind of isn't this super dark wizard is because he doesn't use his powers that way, but not because he's not that powerful. And I find this kind of introduction as, of, as Dumbledore of this super pow powerful noble person that we should trust, very interesting. But also, Dumbly is on his shit and is already withholding information, is already not giving people the full picture. You can tell he already has a very keen sense of some of the goings-on that no one else is, is able to, to figure out. I just find this whole interaction with them kind of pre-Hagrid showing up absolutely fascinating. I do too. I also love that McGonagall arrived at paper and milk delivery time and stood vigil all day you know, it's, she's, it's ridiculous she's been there all day sitting on she says either a brick or a stone wall i can't recall at this moment you know but the the appearance of dumbledore and the revelation you know when he says i should have known that's him telling us, the readers, that there's something equally magical about the cat, right? Like, when he said, like, he knows something about that cat that we're about to learn. It is such, I, it's such a great forced step into the world of the magic, you know? And even and when he arrives, we get the put outer. The put outer, I we're gonna have a put outer debate about the name maybe in a different episode, but the put outer's here, and Dumbledore just shows up in his high heeled boots and he turns out the lights. How cool like that is just so freaking cool as a ten or as cool as an adult, but as a ten year old, I was like glued to the page. Like this is amazing. This dude shows up and he has a little thing that just turns out all of the street lights. Like that's just awesome. It's just cool. Yeah. As as a kid reading this i'm thinking what are you about to do that must happen in the dark why do you I, abhor yeah. the light you know as an adult i'm thinking this is a character who has the agency to banish elements of the muggle world as soon as he arrives as soon as he arrives he is given the literary device to turn off muggle devices you know, like it's it works on both levels. It works whether you're trying to analyze this text or not. As a kid, I'm just like, oh, oh, like when I read this, what we do in the shadows did not exist. But I had that idea. Right. Like we're we are this character arrives and has to turn off the lights. I, as a child, have engaged in mischief and I know that mischief cannot happen. When the lights are on. Correct. Therefore, there is something coming. Um, and yeah, even like without the more magical auspices of the put outer device and turning off the lights and let us fully indulge in magic and that description of Albus Dumbledore. Oh my goodness. Also, if you haven't noticed it, purple. Um, but like there's <laughs> there is 
there's a built-in intimacy, a built-in relationship between Dumbledore and McGonagall with, or at this point, the cat, I should have known. And that's also, despite your reference of the kissing of Petunia, which I think is wise, and I may have to reread this entire chapter and reconsider my opinion of Vernon Dursley, but I have felt that the Muggleish world is cold, and that coldness is part of that experience. And part of what I take from this interaction that you're talking about between Dumbledore and McGonagall is a friendly intimacy. There is a warmth there. There is knowing. There is a a community, right? There is a feeling of being part of a collective. And I feel, when I read this, that feeling just jumps off the page. It is unavoidable to me. It also has one of my favorite writing tropes, a necessary trope, and this this person becomes Harry Potter for the rest of this book and the rest of the series in a lot of cases. Um, but you need a character in every scene that has no idea what the fuck is going on so that one of the characters <laughs> has, an ex- has an excuse to tell that character what is going on so that we, the reader, know what's going on. And McGonagall... The- this is where McGonagall becomes Professor uh, Reader. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She becomes the professor. avatar for us. Yeah. yeah, McGonagall becomes our avatar, and we learn a lot about the Wizarding World here. Voldemort on Halloween went and attacked the Potters. Right, we don't really know who the Potters are, but they are dead. The house was blown up. This is a this is an attack. But something about something about the boy, the boy who lived, who, who we will learn is Harry Potter stopped him we don't know what yet mcgonagall tries to to, to ask dumbledore and the dumbledore's i have no idea i have no possible this guy has lots of ideas come on mcgonagall you've worked with him long enough um we learned we also learned that the the magic world is secret like mcgonagall's kind of stern and cross with the the magic world dumbledore has been invited to 12 parties and seems stoked about it And at the end we'll say like let's go celebrate and mcgonagall's like and all of these wizards and their owls and their shooting stars what if we get noticed still worried about the legal ramifications to voldemort's doom and so mcgonagall becomes our avatar and we learn a lot about the the wizarding world and 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 what's going to happen here. And the main thing from a narrative perspective to keep the story going is that Harry Potter, the boy who lived, no one really understands why he lived. Um, he's going to be brought to the Dursleys. And McGonagall's pretty against this. You know, the Dursleys aren't the best people. She gets a little upset. Like, I've I've seen their daily routine. They're trash humans. So don't put Harry Potter here. And Dumbledore's like, now, now, McGonagall. I know what I'm doing. Harry's coming here. Wouldn't it be nice if he grew up away from all of this fame that he's going to have for going 1-0 early on against Voldemort. And I would only add to that that it's important we notice she's taking the logical examination of the situation here. She's, She's thinking things a few steps out. She's trying to examine the, you know, uh, logistical ramifications the the rules ramifications you know she's what a rules if person. this she is yeah she's about rules and she's about information until quidditch then she doesn't care about the first year rule she's like i got a star seeker and we're winning the fucking cup fuck the rules 
Yeah, anyways, that's, well, a, that's for a different chapter. But right now, she's a rules person. Right now, she's a rules person. You know, and we we have to, you know, to your point about audience avatar, we have to have her because we don't have fully formed Harry yet, right? Um, and and later we will get to experience the unique joy of the Harry Potter series that is the protagonist as the audience avatar. That is rare. And we get to enjoy that. But for now, um, we just get to enjoy this, these beautiful moments between Dumbledore and McGonagall. Now, I won't say they're not without their faults. There's, there's some weirdness here. But it is unapologetically magical. We learn that cats can turn into people or vice versa. Maybe both. And they keep their glasses marks. That's pretty cool. That is very cool. We learn that there are people magical enough to realize that an animal is actually a person. I should have known. Even though that becomes a little more complicated if you actually examine some details. But we also get, in a way, it seems as though Dumbledore, the lemon drops, Bradley, the lemon drops. It's a, it's a muggle sweet I'm particularly fond of. Is he straddling the line between mugglish mundanity and the wizarding world? Is he some kind of... Like, is he a transition point or is he just interested in muggles or does he just like candy? You I, know, I like, it's a lemon drop. It's, thing a, is, it's an interesting detail. Yeah, I always like the lemon drop thing just because it shows, at least for this moment, before we learn about, you know, how racist the bad guys are. Um, <laughs> you you get this moment where the, where the Dursleys don't want to acknowledge magic. It's bad. Anything different is bad. And Dumbledore's like, hey, these fucking people got good sweets. Right, like he's he's willing to acknowledge that the Muggles are there and they make good candy, and he doesn't actively just hate anything muggly for no reason if it's delicious. Is it part of that understanding and that willingness of grace on his part that leads him to believe that putting Harry with the Dursleys is potentially a good idea? So this is interesting. Because we know retroactively the reason that he needs to he needs to be with the Dursleys for Dumbledore to take Lily's protection, do whatever charm he's gonna do. Because Dumbledore does a specific charm. As long as Dursley lives with or as long as Harry lives with the Dursleys, Lily's sacrificial protection will still protect him. But because Dumbledore is on his game, he can't say any of those things. And maybe, maybe JK didn't fully know that yet. <laughs> so he needs, she needs another reason to leave Harry here. Um, but once Hagrid shows up with Harry, I, I buy this Dumbledore explanation. Dumbledore, we are going to learn, withholds information, partly because the audience needs information uh, at different pace. And like Harry needs information throughout the school year so the books don't end right two chapters in right like things need to happen over the course of a school year and and dumbledore's got this big master plan and he's not going to give that up to mcgonagall and so he what he's going to say instead has nothing to do with the protection which is the real reason he needs to be here what he's going to say is like mcgonagall brings up a good point he's going to be famous everyone will know who he is he took out the dark lord as an imp and he's one and oh he's running up the score already 
and he's going to be famous. There's going to be a Harry Potter day. There's going to be books written about him. There are. We're reading it. It's such a good write. We're reading that book that's written about Harry Potter. It's beautiful writing there from, from JK. But Dumbledore's going to say, and wouldn't it be better to grow up away from all of that? And I, I buy that reasoning. That is a good kind of faux, good kind of um, um, distraction reasoning, right? And wouldn't it be better for him to grow away from all that with his family until he's ready to take on that burden? And it's not entirely truthful, but it's it shows in retrospect just how collected and composed Dumbledore is. He's he he is in control of every situation he's in, and that includes this one with McGonagall, who we will hold on a very high pedestal. Right, we will hold her in very high regard as a very intelligent, very competent, very extraordinary witch throughout this story. But even she is at the mercy of Dumbledore here. She is at the mercy of the information Dumbledore will give her. She is at the mercy of whatever fucking reason Dumbledore wants to leave him at this doorstep. She doesn't get to decide this. She's not involved. She's just there and concerned, which is amazing. But Dumbledore is in is full control here, and that is not ambiguous. I agree with you. When it comes to Dumbledore's control of situations and also his duplicity. However, I think there is a way to read this. This is the night after the event. This is the night after the capital T-E, the event, right? It's entirely possible that Dumbledore does not understand exactly what happened yet. There's... And... If I remember correctly, he does say we may never know. It's possible that over the next 10 years, he learns what happened. It may be possible that even Dumbledore does not understand the value of the protective magic of Lily's love for Harry. Maybe he spent, you know, we we don't get this, but maybe he goes on some kind of fact-finding mission and figures it out, right? So... I think it is correct that we are correct to interpret his duplicativeness and his willingness to withhold things. But it's also possible that we see him in a moment of still learning here. And you know what? Chapters one and two, we can just end it there. That's what we're getting in these two chapters. We don't know. Yeah. Right? I'm retroactively applying information that i learned later for the analysis here but maybe that's not fair chapters one and two you don't you don't know you just you just know that you should probably trust this dumbledore guy and he's saying we may never know he's saying that he's not sure and you know what maybe that's good enough well and if you it it depends on how you want to read the books it depends on the choices you make as the reader because there's an argument to be made that there's enough in the text when when this character shows up if there's something about the protagonist that even he does not understand, you can take from that the protagonist is very, very special, even in the context of a very, very special world, right? Yeah, I think McGonagall actually does a lot of that legwork in in, in hyping Harry up as this person that's worth paying attention to. Dumbledore does yeah, a little... Everyone that he killed, but he couldn't kill this boy. Yeah. Yeah, and Dumbledore... Yeah. Dumbledore again on his on his shit with the scar, being like, you know what? I'm even if I could remove it, I'm not going to. Scars can come in handy. And then he has he has the London Underground scarred on his knee. Cool. All right, Dumbly, whatever. But um, 
he he knows more than just he's like he knows that scar will be handy and maybe you're right there's a there's a fact finding mission to go on between now and and when we see harry at hogwarts with dumbledore that's not an insignificant amount of time to go on uh uh, a mission to find this information, but he already knows a little bit that a scar may be handy. It might be useful. They can come in handy. And we won't even get that until the end, the last two chapters of this book, I believe, are when we get like fully the scar blisteringly painful. Otherwise, we get little bits of it when in the, in the great, we're getting ahead of the chapters, but Dumbledore already understands more than he's letting on, regardless of how much that is. And how much he still needs to go on a fact-finding mission to gather. Yeah, well, circling back to this book specifically, he says about the scar, you know, she asks, can we remove it? He says, even if I could, I wouldn't want to. Like, he, like what, what is he saying there? I read it as all-powerful wizard that could counter the greatest threat to magical humanity ever this all-powerful dumbledore intuits understands and claims i cannot remove that scar even if i could i would not want to he's admitting to us the reader there is something powerful embedded in this child that i cannot touch and yeah, that lets us know this is definitely the boy who lived. Okay, we we now have our protagonist. And I don't know, that that is one of the moments in this chapter that's that's to me not duplicative, not like not avoidance. That's very humble from Dumbledore. It's him saying I'd like to. Like I'd like to be able to, but I I can't. This is magic beyond even my ability. I also, I also do want to give JK a little credit here for those, those bits of lines. We, we, it's very consistent throughout the books that you cannot fix scars, wounds, anything that's been cursed by dark magic. We're going to get Bill Weasley in book six with Fenrir Greyback. That can't be fixed. We're going to get George's ear in book seven. That can't be fixed by anyone. Not, not just Dumbledore. Like no one, Madam Pomfrey can't do it. Uh, There's no one who can fix dark magic or wounds or scars or curses or whatever that has been caused by dark magic. And I, I like that it is humble from Dumbledore, but it's also a good bit of world building because she keeps it consistent in this moment. Is that a rule of the universe? Who knows, but it is, it is something that becomes a rule of the universe that does not get broken later. And so just looking at it from that point of view as well, over a broader storytelling thing, she's putting these little steps in there that are world building for us that we can then come back to. You can come back to this moment and be like, oh, right. She established pretty early on that dark magic is different than regular magic and can't be treated the same way. We do, we're sticking to times better for Let's Dive Deep Harry Potter than we did for Let's Dive Deep Hamilton. We got about five more minutes in this chapter to keep it in a relatively (laughs) decent time frame. I do want to talk about Hagrid real quick. We get to meet Hagrid. We have a lot of time to talk about Hagrid in chapter four, five, six around there. But comes on Sirius Black's motorcycle, little bits of world building. I want to talk really quickly about foreshadowing versus just smart writing. A lot of people love to call JK the master of foreshadowing. Like the Harry Potter books are masterfully foreshadowed, and they are. I would like to counter that some of it's probably foreshadowing. 
some of it's probably just clever writing, right? Here, you get the motorcycle and you get Sirius Black and you just get these mentions. There's a magic motorcycle and there's Sirius Black. So when you get to book three and you need a villain, right? Well, let's pick someone I've already mentioned, Sirius Black, right? You don't need to know when you write Sirius Black's name on the page that he's going to come back in this story at all. But when you need something, you can go back and see what you've written. It happens in book six too. Okay, Malfoy needs these devices for to get out of the room of requirement. What's he gonna use? The Hand of Glory. That was mentioned in book two. When you write about it in book two, you don't need to know it's gonna come back in book six. But when you write book six and you're looking for a device that could be helpful, pulling back on something you've already written makes you seem like a master foreshadower. So I just wanna, a lot of Harry Potter's trying to figure out what is genuine foreshadowing and what is just her really intelligently going back and combing her own work for little mentions, little phrases, little things that she can then reintroduce so that we've already been exposed to them, right? We get mentions of the pensive a hundred times before we ever dive deep into the pensive properly, right? These little, little smart little gray. So I just want to point out the serious black and the motorcycle bit just because it's going to be fun to track and highlight what is good foreshadowing and what is just going back and pulling on references you've already put in accidentally. I think that's a very important thing to point out. And I'm biased, but, you know, in, in my opinion is that J.K. Rowling would have made a fantastic dungeon master because... <laughs> When you're when you're running D and D and you're trying to to figure out what the next plot point is, sometimes you just find something from your past and you you find it you know and you bring it out, and your players at the table think that you're a wizard. They they think that you're amazing because you have made this big grand thing. Whether it was planned from the beginning or it was spontaneous. I would argue, and again, I'm biased here, I would argue that it makes no difference. It doesn't at all make a difference. The impact on the reader is the same. The impact on the person experience the story is the same, right? Absolutely. But we even get a mention of Daedalus Diggle in this chapter, or in the second one, one of these two chapters. And like Daedalus Diggle gets mentioned one more time, and then he's just in book seven. But it's smart. Yeah. You, you need someone to come to this house to take the Dursleys away. Let's just pick a name that we've already heard before. Daedalus Diggle from chapter one of book one. We're going to eat this guy over. And so, yeah, it doesn't make a, it, do, it doesn't make a difference. But I just want to point it out as a, as, as, as a very smart and thoughtful way of writing the stories regardless of what's pre-planned and what's not it does show that jk has an immaculate attention to detail with the little things she puts in her stories these little bits of world building these off character mentions these little like magic trinkets like the hand of glory right she puts them in mm -hmm. there right and it may, they might just stay there as little magic trinkets and that's cool but she's very aware of her writing. It's she's very aware of it. She doesn't put anything in these books that she doesn't remember and refer back to if she needs to, and she doesn't create anything new unnecessarily. It's a very expansive story, but also very confined in the sense that everything in this world feels feels like it belongs and feels like we've had enough time to sit with it and feels, you know, there's going to be a lot of Deus ex, Deus ex Machina pitfalls and a lot of fantasy fantasy stories 
Harry Potter feels like it doesn't have very many of those because anytime those things happen, the Sword of Gryffindor, the Phoenix, those types of things, right? We've been exposed to them before, so we're aware of them and we're comfortable with them before they become a bigger deal later. Um, so I just want to point it out with Sirius Black here early on because I really enjoy tracking that kind of stuff as we go through these chapters. I think it's important that we do that now, and I'm glad that you did, because it's something that is going to be a reoccurring theme. I have absolutely no doubt it's going to be. You know, it's a common slam against J.K. Rowling. It's either, oh, you retconned this, or you went back and pulled this out. How convenient. And you have to bring a lot of animus to the argument to just assume that it's immediately convenient or a shortcut or a retcon. I am of the school of thought that sometimes stories have to expand and change to fit the expanding and changing worldview of the people experiencing that story, right? You know, uh, turning Sirius Black starts as just a tertiary character that lent Hagrid a flying motorbike. Oh, all of it. Now, all of a sudden, he's the most empathetic, uh, emotionally involved character in the series. How is that any different from our understanding changing of Darth Vader at the end of Empire Strikes Back? Absolutely. Like, Are there problems with the books? Absolutely. We're going to talk about the problems, but this, like, this is not a problem. This is, I, I'm, I'm of the this opinion. This is a feature. Op- it's a feature. A great one. It is I'm a feature. A, I, yeah. I'm of the opposite opinion. This is, this is what makes yeah. these books amazing. Yeah. That's, that's why I love you bringing it up. And also we're, we're told so much about Hagrid here by his use of the phrase young, serious black lent me his motorbike like we know we know where Hagrid is in relation to Sirius Black we know that Sirius Black is willing to do Hagrid the servant a favor when we get into Sirius's family's relationship to servants and servitude and classicism we understand all we need to know about Sirius being noble and we also know, uh, like, everything that's, that's in this moment, what, what McGonagall says about Hagrid, and Dumbledore says immediately, I would trust Hagrid with my life. So, of course, he would trust Hagrid with Harry's. It's, oh, it's all so brilliant. All right, we got to move on to chapter two. There's a lot, like, if you're listening to this podcast... The one thing about Harry Potter that's great that we can't do in Hamilton is we just have a million opportunities to reference all these things. So if there's anything we missed in this chapter that's that's important to you, let us know for all the chapters, always. Let us know, emails, Twitter, Facebook group, all that stuff. But also, we will probably get back to it and circle back to it in another chapter just to make sure these aren't going for 86 hours like the Hamilton deep dive did. Um, Connor, who is... I just want to point out real quick. They leave Harry on a doorstep overnight. This is ridiculous. They're magical. Can you put a warming charm on him or something? Can we knock on the door? Is it really worth having Petunia find? Can we not just wake them up? Can we not just wake them up? Sorry. Do we have to leave Harry there overnight? Can we not wake the Dursleys up? It's ridiculous. 
Or you own a put outer. Do you not own a put louder? Like a little like cherry bomb you can put on the porch and just wake them up at some point? Doorbell, apparate, bazinga, Harry. Anyways, doesn't matter. I This ridiculous. Connor, who is your yep. winner of this chapter? My winner for this chapter has to be Dumbledore. Mine is also and Dumbledore. I think that my reasoning for why... Dumbledore is the winner of this chapter. I'm going to go ahead and call. This is my first request. This is my first like full-throated adamant request for a bonus episode to talk about Power Trio version one in Dumbledore, Hagrid, and McGonagall versus Power Trio version two in Harry, Hermione, and Ron. And I think, like, I, you and I, we, we got, like, at least a half hour to talk about this. But I, I think I, Dumbledore is my winner here. So, that being said, Dumbledore is my winner here because of his status as our introduction to the most magical world possible. Like, we're... Di- as you mentioned earlier, we're ramping up into the magical world. We're dipping our toes in. When Albus Dumbledore arrives, is there is it possible that there's anyone more magical than him? Like, we know immediately. This is... If we're watching Men in Black, this is Agent K. This right. is the guy that's like... This is the expert wizard, right? Um, but also, he... Not only does he set us up for our transition into the broader story, but he is the voice of authority. He is masterful of the situation around himself and the situation around us in the muggle world. He is in complete control. And also, we know that we're going to be okay. Like, there's, there's a sense of foreboding. I agree. And I question his choices of leaving a baby out in the cold overnight. But I, as the reader, trust his mastery. Like, and also just, he has to be the winner because we have to trust him. Right. For so many reasons. Like, it's going to be interesting. It's going to be interesting to, to see how often we disagree on the winners for chapters. I think that's mm-hmm. going to be fun. I have Dumbledore as well for all the reasons you mentioned. Um, I put, well, Harry starts his defense against the Dark Arts career going 1-0 against Voldy. Dumbledore is the winner of this chapter. You get a really keen sense that he is starting to put some of the puzzle pieces together about the Voldemort situation, and this is the Kickstarter that will allow him to eventually discover the Horcruxes and put into motion the plans to defeat him forever. I think narratively he's the winner. I think... I think within within the story in terms of what all of this is kind of meaning, he's really starting to put some puzzle pieces together. He He's going to have to discover the Horcruxes and get rid of Voldemort, and he's going to be the only one to do that. And I think this is where that begins. Um, and I, I just think, I just think he, so far, Dumbledore is winning Harry Potter. If it's Potter. The only reason I want to do this is because I'm convinced Harry Potter does not win Harry Potter. <laughs> Oh, I know. And and I am looking forward to us having objective mathematical proof that that is true. Like, I agree with you, but I want it on paper. Right, I want it on paper. Who wins the most chapters in Harry Potter? Yeah. We're also going to pick a winner that's... Sorry. 
who is your winner for a non? I think we were going to the same place. Oh, yeah. So this is the thing. We're gonna pick a winner that's a a living being, something with a heartbeat, right? And then a non-living entity who wins. It could be a theme. It could be a story. It could be a a, a magical device. Something that's not living, just because it's fun and this is a fucking magical story. And so we're gonna pick some magical shit that gets to win as well. My my chapter winner here is Wizard Kind. The the whole aura of just wizard kind as a whole. Um, Voldemort's gone. They get to celebrate. They get to party. I like parties. I like an invite. You know, this story, one of the most endearing lines is like, and here's where our story begins. It's a terrible piece of writing. The narrator's all over the place, but it works for JK and it works for this story. And breaking the fourth wall to invite me into the story. I love that. Love an invite. And so I, I just, I like all the parties. I like that Voldemort's gone. You know, they had precious little to celebrate over the last 11 years and and they get they get the they get the night to party somewhat related to my winner for this chapter in terms of the more esoteric elements i think that there are some missteps in this chapter writing wise but we're completely in the realm here of classical heroism JK lets us know everything we need to know about what this story is. And Harry Potter is a protagonist in the tradition of Achilles, right? In the tradition of Luke Skywalker. He's not a hero in the tradition of, say, you know, the the gallant knight going off and doing errants of daring do. He is heroic because of who he is. And that lets us know that we're in a classical story where you can have people that are just magical and special. And we're going to see the results of that. And I think that it is a wise bit of storytelling. It lets us know what kind of story that we are reading. Um, later on, you know, we're going to get some more deific, more important, more messianic themes applied to Harry Potter. Right now, we just know that he is a hero. He is a hero because of what he is. He is the boy who lived. And we know that, right? He has not yet won the Triwizard Cup. He has not yet won his first Quidditch match. He has not yet done anything except avoid hypothermia he is already (laughs) special right and the book is telling us about that and also telling us how to read the book itself um this is a tale of classical heroism and that is going to inform or at least it should inform our reading going forward audience let us know who your winners are both for living entity and non-living entity. We got Twitter, we got Facebook, we got all the places, email. Just let us know anywhere you want to let us know. We will be back after a quick break to talk about Chapter 2, The Vanishing Glass.
Chapter 2, The Vanishing Glass, it's Dudley's birthday, and through a series of fortunate events, or unfortunate if you're Mrs. Fig's leg, Harry gets to tag along to go to the zoo. At the zoo, he fucks up a bunch of shit with a snake that he can apparently talk to, and the Dursleys freak out about a whole bunch of stuff because they are literally terrible people. That is my recap. That's not a perfect recap, but that's that's the gist of it if you haven't read the chapter before hopping in uh, to this podcast. My alternate chapter title here yours is funnier but i'm gonna i'm gonna give mine uh 39 presents two terrible parents and one badass snake it's for not bad it's good for all the obvious reasons i don't need to dive deep into that one that it's very good it and it's also like very similar to the economic situation in the wizarding world you know <laughs> 200 <laughs> galleons to a canut 47 knuts to a bojangle, 29 bojangles to a doohickey. Uh, yeah. It's it's very good. What's your what's your alternate chapter title? Chapter 1. <laughs> I love that. The beginning is kind of like a prologue. We don't need to talk about it for too long, but like considering what the epilogue is like, the first chapter is just a prologue. It's not really a chapter 1, but that's yeah. okay. I mean, it really is Look, it, it's worth considering partly because there is a narrative tone shift near the beginning of this chapter that is so noticeable. And I mean, it's well done. It's subtle. Don't get me wrong. Like I'm not saying it's noticeable to the point of being heavy handed or poorly written, but it is noticeable. It's, it's noteworthy. It's worth calling out. Right. But chapter one of Harry Potter, the boy who lived, reads like prologue. At the beginning of this chapter, we get, it was nearly ten years since they found Harry on the doorstep that one night so many years ago. I mean, it really is. Like, you can see the camera panning across the chapter, <laughs> you know? Uh, and there's that line... Our night, our story begins. Well, our story doesn't actually begin. Like, it really does feel like prologue. And maybe you can make the argument, like, are we talking about story setup? Or are we talking about story beginning? This feels much more like a story beginning because of the shift of narrative voice when Aunt Petunia wakes Harry in the cupboard under the stairs. Um getting a little bit ahead of myself maybe but yes my alternative chapter title for this chapter is quite simply chapter one all right viewers listeners you know what to do let us know who wins this is going to be another cool thing to track is who has the best alternate chapter titles throughout the series like who do the listeners think overall wins the best alternative chapter titles i think we're slowly starting to find a two chapters and i'm more willing to just meme the chapter titles <laughs> you have some very deep literary analysis as to your chapter title choices so we'll see what the listeners appreciate more uh, the first thing i wanted to talk about in this chapter is the narrative voice change um throughout harry potter harry potter increasingly becomes the center of the narrative voice and we begin to get through all the books is a very slow merge less and less omniscient and more and more just kind of focused through the lens of harry eventually we become in harry's head we're not quite there yet but the narrative voice slowly trends toward harry over multiple books it takes a while before we're fully 
in Harry's head. Interestingly, though, you can tell with the narrator that this is JK's first book, I think. In Chamber of Secrets, the narrator is much more polished. In this book, it jumps around a little bit, depending on what we need from the story. So it is fine. Like, it's not noticeably terrible. It's just noticeable, right? We have the omniscient point of view to give us our little prologue in chapter one. Later, we're going to get Hermione, like it shades towards Hermione as we go through and she bumps Coral and lights Snape's robes on fire. So we get these little bit of narrator jumps that are, I would say, uncommon, Right? It's kind of common to pick a narrator at the beginning and stick with it. Um, Game of Thrones has a style where it bounces from character to character, which is fine, but the chapter titles are literally the character by which the narrative is going to function <laughs> in this chapter. And in Harry Potter, it's mostly Harry. Now, later, outside of book one, her moments where we break from Harry's narration are going to be very precise for specific reasons. The first two chapters of book six, the first chapter of book seven, um, the first chapter, the second chapter, one of the chapters early on in Goblet of Fire where we're with Frank the Gardener. Um, those are those are picked with precision to give us more info about Voldemort or the Ministry of Magic or the Prime Minister of Britain or whatever. But here it's kind of like, I'm just going to do whatever I need to do with the narrator. There's no real, I, I get the sense in book one, it's just, I'm just going to tell the story I want to tell. And wherever the narrator needs to be in that chapter is where it's going to be. Here it is with Harry. Thoughts on the narration here. I think it's important to notice when we make this first shift. Um, and I acknowledge also that we're going to have occasional diversions back into that uh, what I call the long view voice, right? What uh, what what I refer to as, you know, a, a a tone of voice that is more like the Cimmerillion than the Hobbit or Lord of the Rings. We we have this very far away view, this long view of the story writ large, and this view goes over the chapter break it extends into the beginning of chapter two and it lasts until uh talking about harry in the cupboard under the stairs after the it had been nearly 10 years since whatever uh harry was asleep still for a moment and then Aunt petunia raps on the door and we start going into a very immediate close third person view of the story and it's interesting to me because it causes me to wonder who is telling this story and to whom is the story being told? Because understanding that helps us as readers interpret what information we're being given is genuine and trustworthy and what isn't, you know? Like, understanding the narrator of Fight Club helps you watch the movie. <laughs> yes. Yes, it does. You know? Like, who, who is telling the story of Harry Potter? And I don't think that it's incidental or, like, super hip of me to bring that up because we get reference, we get metatextual things in the book. Every child... Alive knows his name. Stories will be written about his name. Like, that's clearly a part of what we're dealing with here. Um, 
and so that that's part of that's part of my justification of chapter two being chapter one is is the narrative shift. But it just it really does it fascinates me. Is it important to ultimately decide right now who's telling the story? No. Do I want to decide at some point? Yes. But it is like it it's a fascinating question for me to ponder. Who's telling the story and to whom? Because for me, as we begin our tale, it influences why the Dursleys are described as they are. It influences high uh it influences how and why McGonagall, Dumbledore, and Hagrid are described as they are because who saw them on the street? Yeah, who some, knew someone what was they there. did? Someone was there. Was it one of the three of them? And this interaction that we're gonna get to with the snake and uh the vanishing glass, how do we know? what happened you know the the pov influences our analysis or at least it should we don't have to assume the pov that we're given but we should at least consider it right and it's very interesting to me particularly because if i'm being perfectly fair and honest rowling's pov waffles a bit i think you know like i don't I don't always want to take her word for everything. I, I think I think book one is very much, I know exactly the story I'm telling, and the narrator is just going to move where it needs to go to get the story told. And most of that is with Harry. Mm-hmm. But in book one, it is noticeably a little shiftier than the other books. I think by the time book two comes around, Right, I really get a sense that not only does she understand how she wants to tell this story and the story she wants to tell, she's really figured out how to tell it from a more consistent narrator or from a more consistent narrative voice. Because even though the narrator is Harry for most of these books from here on out, the type of narration that Harry gives is different. Like we're here where it's, I don't even know what type it's not limited omniscient, but it's kind of omniscient and it's kind of limited. We're we're with Harry, but we're not in his brain. We're not only seeing things Harry can see. We're not only hearing things Harry can hear. Right? When we get to book five, we're very much closer to that type of narrative style with Harry, where we're really focused on the things he can see and hear. Mm, right? Mm-hmm. But yeah, mm-hmm. it's kind of limited omniscient in the sense that we're limited to the things Harry knows about the magical world but otherwise we are omnisciently able to view it yeah i feel like book yeah one, it's it's the, a we, it's a weirder narration for me it is and, and kind of like the reason the reason it so sticks out for me here is like it's it it's such a noticeable shift like, and well, for a paragraph this book into a chapter it's we it's so I've, this doesn't happen in other books where you no, it's unique it, it is truly unique it is odd and we kind of really stay in that mode. Really, honestly, dude, if I remember correctly, we stay in this voice, this very like camera following close behind, close third person narration until we go through the trap door. And there is like a sentence or two. There is a sentence that's something like, but he wasn't the youngest seeker in a generation for nothing. Yeah. And then he catches the key, you know, and it's that 
that is a very, I know the story and how it ends, and I can slip in this narration that is different from the way the rest of the book is written. It happens with Hermione when because we're in we're with Harry playing the Quidditch match, and then we just jump to Hermione so she can light Snape's robes on fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jump back, yeah. which makes sense. I understand why we need to tell the story that way, but it it just like in most books that I read anyway, and I read quite a bit. If you're jumping narrative between chapters, there's usually a line break. To, to tell you that the narrative has changed, right? And we when, once we change, we stick with the change for the whole time. JK, especially in book one, is more than willing to just jump around wherever she needs to go. And I actually don't dislike it. It is just unique and a strange choice. And maybe, maybe part of the charm of these books and why they're so successful is that because this is her first book and because she's a, a new author telling a fantastical story, not being bound by the traditional way things are written might be an advantage here. Maybe having the narration jump around a little more loosely than most authors would allow in their stories. Maybe that works for a magical story that's trying to be different, that's very unmuggleish. Maybe it's muggly. Maybe the muggles stick with consistent narration. Maybe it's the magical authors that don't. I, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but the narration in book one of Harry Potter is wild and it starts in chapter two and I just needed to talk about it. J.K. Rowling is the Ringo star of novelists. Right. I mean, seriously, you play drums, I play drums. Like, objectively, you want to talk about, like, who is the greatest drummer in the world? Like, who is the greatest, like, objectively, like, when we're talking about proficient talent, right? When we're talking about the actual mechanical skill, okay? There's that old joke about I think it was uh, I think it was Paul McCartney who said greatest drummer in the world he's not even the greatest drummer in the Beatles <laughs> you know like when you when you ask a drummer like about Ringo Starr as a drummer like you've got you've got Danny Carey you've got uh, Vinnie Colyuda you've got Neil Peart you know there are more objectively talented drummers but there is but listen to ticket to ride and tell me ringo star isn't great in his own way like the beatles wouldn't have been what they were and part of it is maybe not knowing the rules it's not it's not about actively trying to break them it's just not actively trying to follow them and that's what i hear when you're talking about jk rowling yeah, I think now that we've talked about 15 minutes on the narration yeah. of this chapter, <laughs> we should probably get into the actual shit that happens this chapter. Probably, probably. Harry, I, let's just talk, I just get out of the way, the Dursleys are terrible. We don't need to dive into every single reason why they're terrible. They're neglectful, they shove Harry under the stairs, they're very rude to him at breakfast, there's no sense that he lives in his own house, right? They won't bring him, they won't even do something as simple as bring him to the zoo. Dudley actively hates this kid too and will just tantrum his way into saying Harry will ruin everything. This kid is neglected, this kid is abused in 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 his own way and in the Dursley's own way of uh, abusing a child and neglecting a child. This is not a good living situation. The Dursleys are terrible people. And this is not ideal for Jan Harry Potter, our main character and our protagonist here. 
I think we're supposed to intuit that he only has like he's got nowhere to go but up from here. I think. Yeah. You also know, makes us very sympathetic towards him. We need to like our yeah. main character, and this is an easy way to make. Like, oh shit! Yeah, he's being treated like shit. Yeah, we should like him. This is terrible. Yeah, and and what you're saying about the Dursleys being terrible, I think we can. You know, we we definitely don't have to go like too deep into it. I think that we come back to it just to just to reiterate that uh that we're supposed to lament where he is and we're supposed to look forward to where he might go in the future. Um I think that we should secure our technological devices and not drop them on the floor while we record a podcast. Um I think that part of the reason we sorry if you heard that dear listeners. Um I think that we're supposed to intuit that his experience hasn't changed so much from chapter one to chapter two or from age one to age 10 V 11. Right. But it's about to. And I think that at the beginning of chapter two, we, I think JK Rowling here is reminding us of all the things that are still constant, still similar to prime us for things about to change drastically. And I think that that's a good piece of writing. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about her description of the Dursleys, though. I just want to get this out of the way. Early on, JK's descriptions of people and things serve a very important narrative function for the target audience of these books. However, in many cases, they can also be problematic, not very well thought out, and will fall into tropes and stereotypes that, especially in 2021, are not appropriate. But even in 1997, when this book was published, were probably not ideal. So I want we'll do all the prefacing bullshit. Like this book was written in the 90s. It was written for a UK audience, which has different sensibilities to mine and Connor's North American sensibilities. Connor lives in the. Does Georgia consider themselves the South? Of the United States. You bet your sweet bippy. Connor lives in the southern United States. <laughs> I live in in a very liberally placed in Canada over in Vancouver. So even Connor and I have different sensibilities. But also North American sensibilities in general are just different than European sensibilities. So all of those things aside. The use of descriptions of good guys versus bad guys is helpful for a young audience because as a 10 or 11 year old, I like to think that these books are written for the age Harry is. That's my favorite way of thinking about it. It kind of tracks with the detail level and the style of writing in each book. Harry's 11, 10 turning 11 in this book. So it's written for 10 or 11 year olds to read. I think that matches very well. And I think that continues to match very well as you go through. When you're a young person reading a book is very helpful to know who the good guys and the bad guys are very quickly. It helps the book not be too long. It helps you kind of focus who should we cheer for, who should we not cheer for. It helps you just enjoy the story more. I know when I was a kid, I appreciated this in any kind of book, right? So we need ways to figure out that the good guys are good and the bad guys are bad. Um, later, we're going to do this in some very good ways, some very healthy ways. The bad guys in book four, at the beginning of the Quidditch World Cup, they're going to be in very dark black robes. They're going to have masks on. It's very obvious who the bad guys are, but it's not inappropriate. Describing anyone who is bad as ugly or fat or I think Petunia gets called horse-faced 
in every single book of the series. I could be wrong, right? Those types of descriptors, and maybe horse-faced is like, if you're being generous, an accurate way to describe someone's face, but it's just not... I just have a hard time as an adult fully checking off JK's description of the Dursleys, even though, yes, they're terrible. There's no need to... Like, we understand. They're, they're not the healthiest family. They don't exercise a lot. Maybe Vernon and Dudley are really large. Does it need to be every second sentence? Does it also need to be... In, the, in Harry Potter, and again, this is very helpful for a young audience, who you are internally shows up externally right? It is very rare for someone to change fully from good to bad or bad to good over the course of Harry Potter, right? Who you are outwardly shows to the world. It is not an internal thing. So if you are bad, you are fat, you are ugly, your polyjuice potion tastes like shit. If you are good, right? With the exception of Petunia, in this case, you are thin, you are attractive. Who is attractive? Harry Potter, Cho Chang, Luna Lovegood, Cedric Diggory. These are all characters, even even pre kind of Voldemort. Tom Riddle described as as attractive characters, right? And while Tom Riddle eventually becomes bad, you know what happens when he becomes bad? He becomes ugly. Voldemort's a very ugly person, right? And so, I want to differentiate from the the narrative purpose of doing this, which I think is very smart, for how she approaches doing it, because I know she can do it well in book four at the beginning, right? But I, I have some problems with her descriptions of the Dursleys, and I just want to I just want to say that I have those problems. I can't rewrite these books. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna refer to the Dursleys as fat or large a whole bunch of times. That's super inappropriate and weird and unnecessary. But I just want to acknowledge that as I'm reading this, I do have these issues. And it becomes a trend, right? Like when you add the Dursleys to the Goblins at Gringotts, you're like, oh, you know. I like, have more on the goblins for the Gringotts chapter, but yep, the goblins are another one yep. that's very bad. That's not yeah. good. It's, you know, I, um, you know, I, I sometimes, uh, and, and maybe this is unfair to Harry Potter, but I sometimes think about, uh, Sauron in Lord of the Rings because he was Sauron the Great and he was, he often presented himself as very beautiful and radiant, you know, and the whole idea of, you know, not everything that is evil uh, appears to be, right? Because in Lord of the Rings, you have Gollum, you, you have Smeagol that was corrupted and his physical form was corrupted with his internal form. And he became ugly and belittled. Whereas... Sauron, who was much more evil than Gollum, had the opportunity to appear more fair than the lesser evils around him. And so, like, again, I risk I risk being unfair to J.K. Rowling, but she could have had the opportunity to have bad guys in her legendarium that still were capable of beauty. Yeah, J.K. is not the only author that does this. We're just analyzing her novels right now, so I'm going to be yeah, tough on sure. her. Yeah, for sure, yeah. Yeah, if we ever sure. do Let's Dive Deep something else and the same problem happens, I will bring it up again. But JK has a propensity, a propensity to fall into unfair stereotypes for a reason that is good writing, but how she approaches getting there is often not ideal. 
in my eyes as an adult you know as a 10 year old i did not give a shit i didn't care but like sentences like the sentence will be like and dudley wrapped his fat fingers around the greasiest most unhealthy sausage ever and put it in his fat fucking mouth and as he swallowed his chin flapped around it's like come on jk come on like we don't need yeah we get it no you're you're not wrong but at the same time if we were doing let's dive deep starship troopers jk rowling would come out like a saint correct yeah <laughs> yeah. So she's not the only one that does this. It is not an exclusively a JK Rowling problem. It just is a problem, and I'm gonna point it out. Moving on, the Dursleys, aside from being described unnecessarily as very large for no reason, they are terrible parents. They're terrible people. We don't need to dive deep into all of the reasons they're terrible. They're also just I, I I try as someone without kids, I try not to judge people's parenting, especially someone who works with thousands of different children a year. I really try not to judge people's parenting. I do have some criticisms for the Dursleys. 39 presents. What kind of what kind of home culture do we have here that the amount of presents you get has to increase every year? Like what the fuck kind of system is this? Right, you know, fully giving into tantrums. Harry makes an observation that, or the the omniscient, whatever narrator is talking to us, <laughs> uh, tells us that, like, whenever Dudley wants anything, he will just keep having a tantrum, and then he will just get what he wants. Not only are they terrible people, they're not the best parents either. Which I think that is a way better way to make tell me that they're bad guys, right? People are allowed to be terrible parents. Not every terrible parent is super fat. And that's an, un- like, that is stupid, right? But this is, a, this is a, like, we need to know the jerseys are bad. Instead of just caricaturing them as overly large for no reason, just tell me that they're bad people. And just tell me that they're bad parents. And I get all that. And that's, I, I like those descriptors here because they are terrible parents. We get that later with Hagrid. As, as the world starts to expand, as we start to grow our understanding of what this world is supposed to be. Like, we get that with Hagrid, right? When Hagrid shows up at the hut on top of the rock in the middle of the sea, he condemns the Dursleys for what they've done, not what they are. And so, for everybody that hates J.K. Rowling's retcons, we get one in book one. So, <laughs> if you like book one, you already like J.K. Rowling's retcons. Um, right now, we're supposed to take it on a YA base level understanding, right? And that's not to that's not to be diminutive. I am not saying that the storytelling mechanics of uh, of YA fiction are bad. And that's also not to say that YA fiction as a genre is bad, because first of all, why the fuck should we define fiction by who's reading it? But Harry Potter is understood as YA fiction, so we have to deal with that. Um, but yeah, it's it's a storytelling mechanic. It's clunky and problematic now, but it is hard to say that it doesn't work here. We empathetically understand that Harry Potter should move on beyond the situation that he is in currently. Could she have done it better in a more nuanced way? Could she have done it better in a more sympathetic way, a less body-shaming way? Sure. 
the goal is achieved. I, I, I think we can move on beyond it because even with its faults, right? It's not what the entire story is about. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Harry needs to go to the zoo. This is hilarious. I love everything about how Harry ends up at the zoo. I love everything from the Dursleys not wanting to leave him at home alone. And I love these little subtle bits of writing. Harry, like You just get the sense that the Dursleys don't want to leave him home alone because they'll burn down the house. And you're like, well, that's fucking dumb. That doesn't make sense. That's just mean. But also, now you understand now, it's because they know he's magical and might like literally accidentally magic their house away. <laughs> like, they they... So it makes a little more sense, right? I'm not defending the Dursleys, but there's depth there. There's a little bit of depth there that's not just simply they hate Harry, so he can't stay home, although that's probably true too, right? But there is a little bit of like, they also know that he's magical and are like genuinely worried that he might accidentally burn the house down. Uh, Mrs. Fig breaks her leg. That is not good for Mrs. Fig. That is not good for the Dursleys, but it is great for Harry Potter because he gets to accompany uh, Dudley, Piers, and the rest of the Dursleys to the zoo, which he would not have gotten to do otherwise. Our first mention of Mrs. Fig's legs. <laughs> right, true, yeah. <laughs> um, it does, the more context we get, right, it does make the Dursleys' fear of Harry more understandable from a certain point of view, but I think in the narrative voice of Harry Potter, and I think this is the right tone to take, their fear is purely xenophobic. You know, they yes, they don't like they don't understand the positive possibilities of magic. It's just magic equal evil. And if he do magic, magic be bad. I am caveman Dursley. Bah. You know, like they that's that's the that version we're given. He might accidentally given. magical their TV to be twice the size or something good. Yeah, he did. Okay. He didn't understand that as you know a, a possibility. Neither of them do. And this is uh very well connected to. We wouldn't want Dursley mixing with a child like that. When when we're given that in the story, Harry is still a baby. Like a child like that just means a magical child. You know, yeah. um. And their their anti witch and wizard xenophobia is expressed to the point where they won't even let Harry sit in the car alone. Yeah, it's it's you know unreal. It is un it's wild. It's truly wild how the Dursleys treat Harry. Um, once good decision, Dumbledore. <laughs> I, I we'll talk about this decision a lot in like book six or seven. I'm on the side that overall, considering the protective magic shit, it's probably the decision that needs to be made although could have been made a little bit more gently. There's some fudging of the rules we could have done to make this better. Anyways, that's for a different episode. So if you have if you have your Wizarding Society CIA Jason Bourne plant on Privet Drive and Miss Fig already, just fucking dump Harry on her stoop My instead of... I don't want to get too far ahead of it. My bigger problem right, with, right. the, with the Dursley situation is that we know later that he only needs to spend X amount of time with the Dursleys to seal the magic. And then he can fuck off to the burrow or wherever he wants to go. Right. Yeah, we and just so it's don't... 
Just leave him there for two or three weeks a year, make that deal with the Dursleys, and then just take him somewhere else. Anyways, anyways, I, whatever, doesn't matter. We'll talk about it in a little Anyway, later. the vanishing glass. <laughs> we get to the zoo. This chapter does a lot to further expand our introduction to magic. Before Harry talks to the snake, which is awesome, cool, great little foreshadowing, awesome stuff, um, we get little bits of magic that are happening to Harry. One of my favorite things about magic in fiction is that you need some way to channel the magic. There is some kind of cost to it or some way you must channel it. In something like The Witcher, the magic takes energy. Doing magic for long periods of time, you can do it with your hands. You don't need a wand, but you will be exhausted. You can't just endlessly do magic, right? You will, you will just collapse. In Harry Potter, you need a wand to channel the magic. Not all magic, but magic is more powerful, more easy to channel, and, and more, I don't know consistent i guess if you use a wand uh, that wand will channel the magic from you i guess out of your wand and towards whatever you're magicking but there are little bits of magic you can do without a wand right growing your hair back reducing the size of your pretty much anytime the dursleys are terrible to you you can magic your way into the status quo so to keep the endless cycle going the dursleys give you a shit haircut you don't want that shit haircut. Your hair grows out. Then the dursley's like, wait, what? I'm giving you that terrible haircut again. And then it's just an endless cycle. More, more magic. We don't yet have wands. But more magical shit is happening. And I am here for it. I also love this. I equate this to uh, Luke Skywalker getting the briefing about the mission on the Death Star. And he casually says, used to bullseye womp rats in my take t16 back home they're not too much bigger than two meters like yeah you know it's it's not a perfect comparison but when we're dealing with classical heroism when we're dealing with people that are supposed to be innately good at things they're supposed to have spectacular things happen around them and we're supposed to understand that there are things that our protagonist can just do this is not a medieval hero story where we have to go through a training montage. There are supposed to be these elements of magic that surround. And that allows for the progression of targeted magic, skilled magic through the mechanism of the wand that you just brought up. And if we understand now that he's innately capable of causing things to happen, then it's easier for us to believe later that he can be such a skilled wizard, right? I, I really love all the mentions of these things that have just happened because on a sad note, well, okay, hang on. First of all, I love the narrative function of it letting us know that he is innately magical that he is innately a classical hero i also it, it it's kind of melancholy in a way like he's been experiencing the world that he should have always been a part of without understanding what that world actually was like just because he's innately magical he should have been a part of that world but got stuck off with the dursleys instead and so he's always been dipping his toes beyond that threshold and not understanding that he was doing so, I find it to be really bittersweet and 
an underrated or underappreciated part of this chapter. He's always been adjacent to the magical part of his life without understanding that he actually was. I, I think we're going to get the chance to explore that a lot when Hagrid comes and yeah. discovers that, like, oh, shit, you don't know anything about your world. Like, your parents died in a car crash. <laughs> like, what? Yeah, no, that's what? A, that's a scandal. So I think, I think you're meant to feel that way. And I, I think you're meant to understand that this whole situation at the Jerseys for Harry is unfair to Harry in every way that it could possibly be unfair. Not only is he now being abused, not only is he being neglected, not only did his parents die and he has to... Like, living with anyone else that's not your parents because your parents died is not an ideal situation, no matter how good it is. Um, but now you understand, at least in this chapter, to a small degree, but you start to understand that he is missing out on his world and his the, this innate kind of power that he has. There's a world that will harness that power, that will teach him that power, where he can go and use those powers with people that are like him. And he can avoid all this Dursley garbage that's happening. And I, I think it all together just culminates in this, yeah, it just sucks. I don't like, I don't need to find a, an emotional word for it other than it just sucks. The whole situation. Yeah, no, that's the, that's the perfect way to describe it. We're just supposed to lament for him. It just does suck. Um. He does get to go to the zoo for the first time ever. He does mention that. They won't let him sit in the car by himself, which is, it's a new car. He's going to ruin it, whatever. During the car ride, a little, just more world building, more foreshadowing. We get, we get a chat about a motorcycle, and he, like Dursley talks about this flying, or Harry mentions this flying motorcycle dream he's been having, which is cool. I want to talk about this dream, but he had, he's been having this dream with a flying motorcycle, and Dursley... Shut, shut up, Harry. The motorcycles don't fly. Like he's just immediate, instant reaction to anything that could possibly be magical, uh, which is very Dursleyish. But it helps us continue to build this world that Harry is starting to talk about some magical stuff, and the Dursleys are not going to be down for that. And then we get to the zoo, and and Harry gets this opportunity to empathize with a snake. Of all things, you know, Dudley and Piers are being terrible because they're terrible. But also, Harry has this moment of empathy with this snake. You know, he's trapped in a cage, much like being trapped under the stairs. And all that he has to do all day is have people like Dudley and Piers come by and poke and prod and knock on the glass. And that that's just the snake's life. And what I, what I enjoy about this the most is that we have a young character. This is a 10-year-old who is able to just so fully understand and empathize with another creature that's not even a human, that it, it's an immediate contrast to the Dursleys who are unable to do that, but they're also adults, which makes it even worse. So this contrast, Harry, Harry not only is someone we're rooting for because of this terrible situation, we are now in, he needs to be a worthy hero of the story. This book is called Harry Potter and the and the Sorcerer's Stone, the Philosopher's Stone, but every book is called Harry Potter and the Blank. Why should we follow Harry Potter? Why is he worthy of our time as readers? And this is the one of those first moments where he earns that from us by just empathizing with a, 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 probably the first person to ever go to the zoo to think about what the snake must feel like in this. Well, I don't think it's lost on any reader that these are two creatures raised in captivity connecting with each other, right? Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, it's it's really good. I mean, here is uh, I, God. What is the line? Uh, 
I get that all the time. I know. Like, it's just, is there, is there actually a world of difference between uh, Dudley and Piers tapping on the snake's glass and Petunia tapping on Harry's uh, cupboard under the stairs door? No, they're 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 very similar, and they're they're written that way. So you you're meant to draw. I think you're meant to draw these similarities between the situation yeah. with the snake and the situation that Harry's in. So do we, when this happens, do we think that Harry's ability to talk to the snake is part of? We should believe that he's a sympathetic character that we can connect to that he wants to connect to all life forms around him. Or do we interpret it as you can talk to snakes? That's magic. Or is it both? Both. Definitely both. Because Harry's 10 years old, he has an uncommon empathy for a 10 year old. Instead of being mad at his, uh, like people in terrible situations can often project those situations on others. Like the bullied then becomes the bully. Right, mm-hmm. like you give someone who is bullied, who understands what it's like to be bullied, power, and all of a sudden they use that power to just become a bully. Right, we we understand right away that Harry's not one of those people. That Harry is able to, despite going through his own problems, to empathize with someone else going through similar problems. As a ten-year-old, that's really impressive. And him being able to talk to snakes, it's another, it's another kind of, kind of slow melding of the magic into the story we don't know at this point that that's uncommon to be able to talk to maybe maybe all magical people talk to snakes we have no idea right maybe everyone that's like harry can come by and talk to the snake but harry chooses to harry sticks around for that conversation and i think it's part of it is if i could just figure out i would i could talk to snakes i'd want to talk to some snakes that's just cool so there's a little bit of intrigue like, oh i can talk to snakes let's keep doing this but also i think it's like Hey, I can talk to snakes. Let's let's empathize with this snake. Like let's 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 actually take the time to do this here now that I've discovered that I I can. I I there's a bunch of fine lines being drawn and overlapping here, but I think I think it's cool magic. I think it it's great for Harry to be able to talk to snakes. I think it kind of cements Harry further as a mad unmistakably magical in some way. But also, I think what it does is it's the first moment we as a reader get to earn, or Harry gets to earn our trust as a reader, that he's worth following, that he's worth understanding, he's worth taking the time to get to know. Because when presented with this opportunity, he's going to take it to do a nice thing, to do a kind thing to a snake, which by proxy of being in the zoo, no one else is doing the snake any kind of kindness. Yeah, for sure. We don't get an explicit... uh ah, you are a snake and you understand me, do my bidding. We get, I would like to talk to you and understand your life story. You yeah. know, he's he's very, like, to your point about his empathy, he's very kind. You know, tell me about Brazil. Have you ever been? What is what is Brazil like? Oh, you've never been. Oh, no. Yeah, it's, it, it's a very emotional thing. Yeah. Hmm. Do we, okay, question for you. Is this, do we, when we encounter this moment, when we read this for the first time or the seventh time, when Dumbledore earlier in chapter one sees McGonagall in her animagus form, right? When he says, I should have known, 
Do we believe that he is speaking to her or himself? I, I always interpreted this to her. So I could be convinced he was talking to himself, though. I don't have an answer, but I I ask because I wonder, like, are we to in this chapter? And and maybe maybe J.K. Rowling had not answered this question for herself at this point. We don't know. But is it is it so? Here's why I ask. If Dumbledore says, I should have known to the cat out loud, believing that the cat could understand him, then speaking to animals is just magical. Whereas I read The Vanishing Glass as talking to snakes is uniquely special. But also, I have to wonder, do I think that talking to snakes is uniquely special because I've read the entire series? Definitely because you've read the entire series. Because there's, yeah, no, because there's no other way to interpret it. When you're reading this for the first time, Harry, we're, we're understanding Harry is magical, and he can talk to snakes. This is different from the cat situation because we saw the cat turn into a human. Right. So we can just intuit that if you're a human that can turn into an animal, you can still understand English. Dumbledore has to, doesn't have to meow at you understand right. what you right yeah when you're reading this for the first time i don't think there's very much wiggle room to believe anything other than magic equals being able to talk to snakes there's no other magical people around to test this theory we are going to get clarity later that this is actually uncommon and harry is uniquely able to talk to snakes a thing with which almost all wizards and witches cannot do but not only that that parcel tongue is a, not a learned language you can't study it you can't absorb it it just you have it or you do not have it we're gonna learn all those things but here harry just can talk to snakes so as the reader i believe that magical people can talk to animals maybe not just i think you're right i think it's i i think it's hard it, it's very very hard verging on impossible to deny that like I'm bringing my foresight of parcel tongue into that. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that's why we have spoilers. It's just impossible to to distinguish from knowing what we know about the story to reading it for the first time when I was 10 or 11. Like, I read this. Yeah. The first that's time. what I'm saying. Yeah. Right. It's impossible to remember what it was like reading it for the first time. Exactly. Like page for page. The snake? God, what a what a gift that would be. Oh, imagine. To go, to go back to the first time. My goodness. Harry anyway, Van so... Uh, why does the glass vanish? This is interesting. So, obviously, in, in the same realm of this unconscious magic we're being aware that Harry can do, right? Harry... And we, we learn that wizards will show magic, right? To different degrees. Like Neville, he gets like dropped out of a window or something and bounces. And everyone's like, hooray, he's actually magical. We didn't think he was. We, we learn later that Lily, as a child, could like jump off the swing set and like gracefully land and kind of float her way down. These are all, Snape can break a branch on Petunia's head. That, that's magic too. So we learn later on, that wizards, before they have wands, before they've been trained, can just 
do some magic, but the degree and the type and the intentionality of it varies widely. Lily and Snape can do theirs intentionally. Snape intentionally breaks that branch. Lily intentionally jumps off the swings and can float herself down or can take the flower petal and, and open it. Here with Harry, it feels more subconscious. And as the reader for the first time, we don't know if this is common. We don't know if this is normal. We don't know if Harry is uniquely skilled to be able to do this kind of magic without training. We don't even know yet that Hogwarts exists or that there are wands, right? We're just still slowly getting into this world of magic. And so I think that Harry does not do this intentionally, but it's just this subconscious magic, the same. I don't think he thinks to himself, grow my hair back, grow my hair back, grow my hair back, boom, the hair grows back. Same with, like, get me to the school roof. I think he wants to avoid the bullies, so he ends up on the school roof. The magic just kind of happens. Same here. He feels bad for this snake. He has empathized with this snake. This snake has talked about how he's never even been to his home. And I have some questions about how this snake is possibly getting from a zoo in London to Brazil across the wall. I don't know how that's happening. But I think it's just that same unintentional magic. Harry, after having successfully empathized with the snake now believes the right thing to do is to allow the snake to be free, that this is not fair, um, and so the glass vanishes. I don't think he looks at the glass and goes, like, he, Harry, I, I believe Harry's pretty surprised by this. He doesn't even understand what he's done, or that he's done it. Like, it just kind of happens. I think he just yeah. wants the snake to be free, and through the powers of magic that be inside him, it just vanishes. I think yeah, that's, that's, that's my reading of the scene as well. Um, it's... Uh it calls to mind uh, the movie Practical Magic, if you've seen it, with uh, Nicole Kidman and Sandra Bullock. I have not seen it. You should check it out. It is a very interesting exploration in what magical what magic is. And part of, uh, part of the joke of the title, uh, as, as I watch the movie at least, um, is that sometimes magic is just intuitive. There are parts of your life. So it's about a family of witches. Um, and part of the practical magic that is expressed in the movie is the love between sisters. And empathy is a magic on its own, right? And I think that's what we're experiencing with Harry here. He doesn't, he doesn't cast a glass vanish Guardiosa he just wants the snake to live a life, you know? Yeah. And I think that's what you're expressing here as well. I can't believe you didn't go with, like, Glacio Removius. You know, I'm not always smart. <laughs> Usually, <laughs> but not always. I don't know. I don't know what base of Latin that just was. <laughs> I, I would, I, honestly, I would argue... I would argue that Glacius Removius could be a supporting character in a later book. That's honestly. true, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, once Harry frees the snake, kind of unintentionally, all hell breaks loose. Uh, the snake kind of like circles around Dudley and Piers and kind of nips at their heel before he's got to get out of there. He's got to get to Brazil somehow. That's another bonus episode. How, how does the snake get to Brazil? Um but of course, you know, Petunia and Vernon are going to milk this for all it's worth. The zoo general manager has to apologize profusely and do all this stuff. 
um dudley and piers are going to embellish the snake it starts like the snake kind of bit my ankle no it almost bit my leg off no it also almost killed me right so the the children are going to embellish this story kind of leading us to know a little bit more about dudley he's going to lie he's going to embellish he's going to exaggerate he's not a very honest young child we're not meant to like dudley uh, a lot um but when they get home the Dursleys, true to form, lock him in his cupboard and yell, no meals. Why is this allowed? Where, I know Mrs. Fig has a broken leg. I draw the line at, hey, we gotta keep him here for the magical protection. Can we stop doing that? Surely him being starved to death is a worse outcome. You're not, this is bad. This is not good. I am not pro-starving children. This is silly. The Dursleys are we, terrible. We have to make his situation truly horrible so that we understand the objective value of him finding his place in the world in which he actually belongs this is where we're still in boarding school adventure territory like he has to he has to have a terrible uncle in order to find his real family it's irresponsible it's abusive it's it, it's a clunky mechanism and it's a very cheap shot on JK's part. Just like, how do we, how do we make them feel bad? No food. That's terrible. Also, as if picking spiders off of your socks, wasn't it enough? Don't forget. Um, yeah, it's not, it's not great. Not at all. I, she does a good job of making us sympathetic for, for Harry here. Yeah. Right. Like for sure. She does a really good job of that. The situation is truly awful. And maybe you do, maybe you just need that that discrepancy. The more awful the situation is, when he gets removed from that situation by Hagrid, the greater the joy, the greater the climb up to ecstasy that is, <laughs> right? Yeah. If, this is, if the situation's like just manageable and not terrible, and then you become, find out you're a wizard, it's cool. It's exciting, but it's like, ah, that wasn't so bad. Yeah, you got you got to have that contrast there. And I'm, and I'm actually, I'm really glad that you brought Hagrid up here because that's one of my specific reasons to bring this up, right? Is because one of the first things that Hagrid does is he feeds Harry. One of the first things that Hagrid does is he not only gives him a birthday cake, that's not necessarily sustenance. That's an observance of the ritual and that's part of it being Harry's birthday and that's Hagrid being mindful of that. But the sausages the mechanical virtue of feeding Harry is a direct contrast to his being denied food previously, right? And I, and I, I think that's why that's included here, is so we understand how much of a change it is for someone to show up. And one of the first things they want to do is, is feed Harry. And this is even punctuated by the fact that we call out before Hagrid arrives later that Vernon got a bag of chips and something else for each person. Like, they're not concerned with food even then. Like, one of the first introductions for Harry into the world in which he actually belongs is being taken care of by way of food. and. This will later change into 
being amazed by how laden the tables in the Great Hall are. This will later change into the kitchens becoming a plot point. You know, like it's food is a thing in you, Harry you, Potter. You pick, you pick up on these little themes that are that are really cool in your notes. You also have some cool themes about birthdays. And how birthdays do play a huge role in Harry Potter. You have the two birthdays here, Dudley and Harry. Next to uh, Chamber of Secrets, we're going to get the worst birthday. Uh, later birthdays are going to become very important as a story mechanic, With at which point you become a fully grown wizard, at which age you're allowed to apparate. These things are going to be important. Um, in the wizarding world, much like in the muggle world, the age specifically you are is very important. In Canada, yeah. the drinking age is 19, and in the U.S. it's 21. Um, so the day before I turn 19, I cannot go and purchase alcohol. The day I turn 19, I can. There's not much difference in my my being from one day to the other, but we've drawn that line there artificially so that there can be a distinction. That at this point, I can do this thing, and at this point, I cannot. And that happens in Harry Potter. At 11, you can go to Hogwarts. At 10, you cannot. It's right. in, it's important. Like I mean just in in terms of like we're 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 talking about like whether whether the first book is a fairy story or a boarding school adventure story. Either way it's a coming of age tale. So birthdays matter, right? Yeah. And also Food matters clearly to J.K. Rowling. Like, clearly it matters to her because it comes up regularly. Now, I pay attention to that because I'm coming to these books from that POV. I'm coming to, uh, I'm coming to these books from the point of view that I'm paying attention to thresholds. And also, I was raised Jewish, so food and birthdays matter. Definitely. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, 100%. like those are, those are things that I pay attention to particularly because like that was my experiencing that was my experience growing up. And it's it's kind of weird, but like there's there's an odd uh similarity between the English boarding school progression and the reform Jewish progression anywhere. The the parallelism is odd, but it's fucking right there. Yeah. Um the last thing I want to talk about this chapter is just the dream Harry keeps having. There are lots of little details in this chapter that we just might not have time for. But the dream Harry keeps having, it's very on the nose, but it, it does do a lot of legwork for just stuff. For just stuff. So this dream, when you're reading it for the first time, there's a flash of green light. There's a flying motorcycle. We can intuit from the flying motorcycle part of this that this is the night that Harry's parents were killed or the night he survived um, or however, because the flying motorcycle, which was borrowed, brings Harry from that situation. And so we, we just assume this is all something to do with that evening that his parents died. You can intuit that from the motorcycle. So Harry keeps having this, this dream about what happened this becomes kind of magical in a way because as an infant you wouldn't remember those things but just by proxy of remembering these things as such a young infant 
right? That's inherently magical. Most people can't remember much past, much before they turned like four or five years old. And I have maybe the vaguest memory of an odd thing from when I was three-ish, but like that's the that's the oldest before you kind of start remembering anything um, consciously where you can pull that up as a memory. Obviously, subconsciously, those memories all influence you. Um, but for Harry, he can remember something that he remembered as an infant. That's interesting, right? But also, it kind of does a little bit of legwork for how important this scar is going to be and how Harry's dreams and his visions and his ability to use that connection with Voldemort to, at some points, you know, to his own detriment, but to gain information, to to be able to... I'm not really sure what I'm trying to say here. It's going to come up again later when his scar hurts, when he thinks because he's looking at Snape, but when, you know, Quirrell's in the room and Quirrell's kind of staring at him as well. It just opens a lot here. The the, the, the tale and the dream is really on the nose, but the, the opportunities it opens up for storytelling are immaculate and they're not wasted. And I just wanted to call out the dream here um, as very, very important groundwork for the story we're about to be told. Yeah, I also think it's noteworthy. Uh, And I have also previously at length pondered what you mentioned about it's atypical to have memories formed that early in life. Um, I have my own headcanon about these dreams and memories that is unsupported by anything explicit in the text, either in this book or any of the other six. But I will share it with you if you're curious to hear it. Absolutely. These are not Harry's memories. I wonder if this is embedded in him because he would not have been the only one to have seen a flash of green light that he would have been present for. And what if the, is it possible that the spirit of Voldemort formless fleeing out of the house in Godric's hollow, is it possible that the spirit of Voldemort could have eventually seen Harry scooped up in a flying motorcycle the next day? Like, is it, is is there a is there a transient memory bond formed by the link between antagonist and protagonist at this point that maybe Harry has received memories that aren't actually his own? I have very many thoughts on that. I'm not going to dive into them right now. I'm going to save them for. I want to say it's book six when this comes up. Book seven, somewhere later down the line where we get the reveal of that night from Voldemort's full point of view. It's when they're escaping from Nagini in book seven. Um, But I want to leave the audience with that. If you're listening to this podcast, really start thinking about this because it is important. You know, Harry's memories are not just his own. His His ability to recall things does not just come from his own personal experience. He is connected to someone or something. What's key here, though, is we don't know that yet. right now it's just Harry having a dream. And so from the Harry having a dream point of view, when I read this, I immediately go, oh, that's just more magic. He's recalling things from his infancy 
maybe magical people can do that. We're about to learn a lot more about it. But I think whether you whether you're just reading this chapter for the first time or whether you've read the story and are revisiting it, there's a lot of exciting possibilities that this dream opens up, even if it's a bit foreshadowy, even if it's a bit on the nose. I think it really works for me. Well, it's, I mean, for the first time through, it's definitely on the nose. It's like, oh, you have a dream about a flying motorcycle? You mean the one from chapter one? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I just, you know, it's when doing a revisit, it's fun to hmm, ponder. Absolutely. All right. Connor, who is your winner for this chapter? Living Entity first. Who wins? You know, it's a bit of a sympathy vote. My winner, Mrs. Fig. This is wild. Because I, it didn't even cross my mind that she could possibly win. I want, I want, I want your just, she broke her, her leg is broken, Connor. She starts yeah. this chapter with an unbroken leg and she ends it with a broken leg. She needs someone in her corner, Bradley. <laughs> and, and that is me. All right. You're, gonna, you're, you're stepping up to the plate for Mrs. Fig. I am stepping up to the plate for Mrs. Fig. I also, I love that, like, uh, what's what's one of her cats, Mr. Paws? Like, you don't, you don't get that many cats without being a good person. All right. And also noteworthy, <laughs> noteworthy, the Dursleys do not have any pets. Okay. And if you do not have any pets in narrative fiction, I am given to understand that you might potentially be a bad guy. Number one. So your number of pets lead me to believe like if it's an exorbitant number, you might be a good guy Four cats. Miss Fig is a good guy. Now, that being said, my winner for this chapter, I wish I could say that it's Jim Dale, but that is a metatextual thing that I am unable to do. Like, I do want to take this opportunity to say, loving the audiobook, my God. we Before we started recording, you and I were both talking about, like, I'm almost done with Chamber of Secrets. You're into Azkaban. Like, we are barreling through the way Jim Dale delivers this chapter is exceptional, but no, seriously, Mrs. Fig, man, she's always there for Harry. Uh, the Dursleys try to give Harry away every chance they get. And whenever they do, Miss Fig is willing. It seems so willing that Harry can describe how her living room smells like Harry can name her cats. Harry can, he is around her enough to like not be necessarily crazy about her, but he knows all these details about her life. And I love the plant here of Mrs. Fig and what we get later on. See, it's this is so good. It is. And I, th I, this is not, no one is going to convince me that this is foreshadowing or anything. No one is going to convince me that Mrs. Fig is a character here. That is put because she's a squib and she's going to watch after Harry, all that stuff. Later. I'm not trying to. I'm no, not. I, I think I just, I just want to clarify for the audience that like it's fun to try and pick out these moments. Because later when Mrs. Fig returns in book five, you're like, holy fuck, what a callback. But to me, I think JK goes, I need someone there. 
that's on Privet Drive to be watching over Harry for this moment. Do I need to create a new character, or is there someone that already exists that I can kind of retcon into being this person? And Mrs. Fig is perfect. You get enough detail about her now that's fun and interesting, but also not enough detail that it can contradict any reveal later. There is nothing in this chapter that is contradictory to how Mrs. Fig will act in book five as the protective squib on Privet Drive. So it's, it's yeah. just... It's incredible writing, but there is a difference between foreshadowing and just cleverly combing your own work for little bits of references that you've made before so as to keep the universe consistent. Yeah, I, I agree completely. Like, Miss Fig for me, or Mrs. Fig, she falls for me in my convention of J.K. Rowling being a clever dungeon master storyteller where she goes back into her legendarium, finds things that she can reappropriate for her needs in the current moment, right? If, if, if Mrs. Fig was a plant from day one, she would have been named Mrs. Zendalthabus. Because <laughs> in, in chapters one and two, right, she yeah. doesn't fit she doesn't fit the wizarding naming convention. She fits the Mugly-ish naming convention, right? Yeah. Like she's in line with Vernon, Dudley, Petunia, right? Piers. She's not McGonagall and Dumbledore, you know? And yeah. but that doesn't make that doesn't make her less of a character and it doesn't make J.K. Rowling less of a writer. Alright. Well, we both love Mrs. Fig. I'm gonna What's yours? I'm disagreeing that Mrs. Fig is the winner of this chapter. <laughs> this is an honor bestowed upon Mrs. Fig has broken her leg. That is her chapter for Mrs. Fig. I'm going with the snake. And I want to talk to the viewers here. I am not intentionally docking Harry wins. So I can just fudge the numbers and prove my point that Harry Potter does not actually win Harry Potter. I can prove that enough by just asking people who their favorite Harry Potter character is and having exactly zero people be like, oh, it was Harry. But Harry, very close to winning this chapter. I think that the the reasons why Harry would have won this chapter will be further explored and will give him some wins coming down the line. I got a couple chapters later on in this book earmarked for some Harry wins for some of the reasons that he may have won this chapter. I think the snake wins this chapter. The snake at this point has been freed. This is a this is a living entity in confinement in a place they do not wish to be confined this is a living entity that through just by accident kind of unlocks a lot for harry potter magically that he will then go on and use to win some further episodes so leave me alone i think the snake wins this obviously the dursleys don't win i can't see a clear win for harry although it is very close but i'm gonna go for the snake for the first and only win in let's dive deep harry potter I don't see a win for Harry. I see a victory for the snake. I don't know if he wins the chapter. Well, I think this is, listeners, you're going to have to get on the socials and let us know who your chapter winner is. It probably should be Harry, but I'm going with the snake for this one. Uh, who is your winner for the non-living entity? Which, which thing, concept, theme wins this chapter for you? It is a line of... Di it's not even a complete line. Of, well, no, maybe it is. I forget how it's written. It's a sentence. 
And again, cycling back to Jim Dale, the delivery is so brilliant. But even when you read it on the page, just the structure of it, it's uh, Vernon Dursley. It's when they're they're trying to find someone to watch Harry so that Harry does not go to the zoo. And Vernon asks Petunia, uh, what is her friend Yvonne doing? And Petunia answers simply, on vacation in Mallorca. <laughs> that on vacation in Mallorca is one of the single greatest sentences ever written in the English language. And that is my winner for non-living entity in this entire chapter. It is so delightful. Every time I read that, I just giggle. It is just <coughs> flawless. Jim Dale's delivery makes it even better. All right. We're, we're differing again. I appreciate the line. I'm going to go a different direction. My winner for this chapter is Curiosity. My non-entity living thing winner. Curiosity wins the day here. Harry's curiosity about his dream, about his ability to talk to snakes, about the magic he can do, although he doesn't quite know it's magic yet. Like, he starts noticing, like, his hair grows back and his sweater shrink, and he ended up on a school roof. He's curious. What is going on here? We are further. It's two chapters now, and we understand magic. We still haven't been introduced to wands. We still haven't been introduced to spells or potions or arithmancy or... any of the other magical things like it's still in terms of the larger scale magic we're going to learn about we're still talking small here but it's that slow introduction to magic that leaves the reader curious right and harry potter never gets into midichlorian territory and i'm gonna love that throughout the story but it allows <laughs> us to be curious it trusts us to ask questions but there's already a bond there that if we trust enough we will get some of these questions answered and some of them will never get answered. We never get an answer as to what makes a person magical. What inherent thing? How can two muggle people have a magical child? We don't get that answer and I'm glad we don't because it allows us to be curious. Not every question needs an answer and I'm leaving chapters one and two feeling insanely curious about all of this stuff without being overwhelmed, without being bombarded with information, without feeling like I lacked anything though. This, this world is sufficiently magical. The magic is sufficiently cool enough and interesting enough. It's not boring magic. I think curiosity is just the overall winner here. I'm curious for all the good reasons. And I, there's nothing here. There's no red flags that are leading, you be, leading me to believe this is going to be a bad story. And so curiosity is my winner. My passion for my answer will never die. However, yours is objectively more interesting and also much more romantic right because i think you're (laughs) no i'm i'm dead serious like i really do think you're tapping into the spirit of what this chapter is supposed to be and i i think that you know we i i think you and i should not be allowed a vote each week right like it should be for listeners to decide but i would vote for yours Yeah, no, we can't vote for we can't vote on our own. Yeah, uh, exactly. But I would, right. I, I would vote for yours. Are we calling chapters one and two of Harry Potter dived deep into? I don't know that that sentence was not correct, but that was bad. That was very bad. Was and I think good. on that terrible disappointment, it is time to end. Yes. All right. 
<laughs> for everybody listening, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Let's Dive Deep Harry Potter. If you have any qualms with the episode, this is still episode one for us. We're still working through some kinks. There's going to be a rhythm. If you're familiar with the Hamilton podcast, by the time we got to like episode four, five, six, we really had a great rhythm going and, and things really start to kind of fall into a, a, a routine. So we might need a few more episodes to really nail down how we want to approach this exactly. But we hope you enjoyed the deep dive. We can't wait to continue to deep dive into Harry Potter. Next episode coming out for you guys will be chapters three and four. Hopefully on Twitter, Facebook, Patreon, those types of places, there's a little um, kind of step-by-step -step guide so you know which chapters are coming out which week so you can read ahead and kind of plan for them with your own notes, with your own emails, with your own tweets. With that being said, make sure to hit us up on all the social medias and email. We would love feedback. Our Harry Potter deep dive is going to take a long time and it will be filled with bonus episodes and question and answer episodes. So any feedback you want to give us about the podcast, about the chapters, about your own analysis, um, let's dive deep pod at gmail.com is perfect. Twitter at let's dive deep. You can join our Facebook group in the show notes below. Just click on the Facebook group. The question will be, um, I solemnly swear that I am up to no, and then all you need to type in is good, and we will allow you into the Facebook group where you can chat about not just Harry Potter, but kind of anything you want in there. We got some cool spoiler rules, so we can talk about all of our favorite kind of pop culture things without being spoiled, which is awesome. Uh, otherwise, please do all the normal stuff. You know, head over to the Apple iTunes store, wherever you're listening to this, and, and leave us a review, subscribe to the podcast feed, all of those other good things. In the show notes below, you're going to find a lot of links. Uh, Connor and I have done a deep dive together on the musical Hamilton, which is just an insanely good time. We hope you enjoy that deep dive as well. I've done a deep dive into Bridgerton that will be coming back for season two shortly. So there's other Let's Dive Deep things going on. That's going to be it from us, though. Thank you so much for listening. We can't wait to continue diving into the Wizarding World, and we will see you in the next one.